how do you find the strength and power to speak out right now? I mean, I don't see a choice but to speak out because if we don't speak out now, we're not going to have the opportunity to speak out later. Um, I've been speaking about the threat of Trump and the GOP uh, and their hostile state foreign backers abroad since uh, 2015. You know, I saw him as a combination of the worst that America had to offer in terms of white supremacy, in terms of plutocracy, corporate corruption, dark money and politics. Um, but he also, you know, as I've discussed in the book, is connected to organized crime, to transnational organized crime and connected to the Kremlin. And so that's a lot to take on, um, you know, requ require a massive organizational effort uh, to get him out of office, which I, I do see as a patriotic goal. Um, but yeah, you know, the, the sooner you speak out, the better. We're moving toward autocracy and there's never been time to spare. But who are the people in whose best interest Trump is? Who are they? What do they gain? Uh, well, Trump is a useful vehicle for a number of terrible people who in the past didn't necessarily see eye to eye, but I think they all recognize him as a way to get their agenda into motion. And so you have, um, you know, very corrupt relics of the Reagan era, uh, people like Paul Manafort and Roger Stone, um, you know, who have been indicted for their crimes, working with, um, you know, essentially the Russian mafia, uh, who were Trump's main financial backers after his bankruptcies. The mafia itself is tied to the Kremlin. And I'm not, you know, overstating it when I say mafia, like these are the most uh, wanted, you know, criminals in the world. People like Semyon Mogilevich, uh, the head of the Russian mafia, who used to be on the FBI's 10 most wanted list until uh, James Comey abruptly removed him. So you have that element. You have white supremacists. We see them in the White House, you know, with people like Stephen Miller, uh, formerly with Jeff Sessions, uh, these, you know, neo Confederate types. You have just run-of-the-mill uh, Republican plutocrats, corporate raiders, people like Steve Mnuchin, who was a protege of um, Carl Icahn, who also was a mentor to Trump. You know, a lot of these people, you can trace their lineage back uh, to a core group of corrupt Republicans who rose to prominence from this, uh, the 1960s to the 1980s. People like Roy Cohn, you know, who himself bridged that gap between the Republican Party and organized crime. People like Carl Icahn, um, you know, who pioneered corporate raiding and breaking things down for parts in the 1980s, which is the same business strategy that oligarchs used uh, after the collapse of the Soviet Union to profit off of the destruction of that country. And so, you know, all of these people combined uh, have an agenda. It's not a hard agenda to figure out. They want money. They want power. They want immunity from prosecution. They want to rewrite the laws so that they're no longer breaking them. And they will do whatever it takes uh, to obtain those goals. It's it's acting in their own self-interest with no regard uh, for serving America and for serving the average American citizen. But what about Russian organized crime? And is it possible, Sarah, that when people were talking about Russian interference, they thought they were talking about Cambridge Analytica and rigging the vote. But what the Russians were actually doing is rigging the entire system for their financial gain to lead people off in that direction. And so they actually avoided the point, which is a sheer amount of money. Yeah, I think that's part of it. I think that they needed to attack not just individual states like uh, the U.S. and the U.K., which were both targeted, of course, by Cambridge Analytica, but all of 
of the um, institutions that would enforce accountability, whether the EU, NATO, the UN, anything uh, that would potentially crack down on transnational organized crime. I see it, though. I see 2016 as kind of a culmination of different actors working together of this merging between white collar crime and organized crime and state corruption that's been happening over the past 20 years. And that was actually the subject of a 2011 speech by Robert Mueller, you know, which I describe in the book about how those boundaries have blurred and it's made it more difficult for federal law enforcement to crack down on these actors. And Felix Sater, um, he exemplifies that, you know, he's a criminal, uh, a mobster um, who worked on Wall Street, uh, you know, was arrested several times, was also working uh, for the Russian mafia, then went on to become an FBI informant for a period of time, uh, and then went on to work with uh, the Trump organization and work with Donald Trump, uh, with Ivanka Trump and Don Jr. He took the two of them to Russia uh, in 2006. They went to the Kremlin. They sat in Putin's chair. I mean, those are not normal activities. You know, of, of course, there's there are business deals between the U.S. and Russia. Um, most of the time back then, it was not an illegal thing, but it's extremely weird that Ivanka Trump was sitting in Putin's chair in 2006. And then you kind of have, um, you know, Sater's role where he was informing the FBI about Russian organized crime. And then nothing came of that. It means that the FBI was well aware that uh, you know Russian organized crime was working in businesses like New York real estate, New York casinos, that they were in fact working and backing Donald Trump, uh, but they never cracked down on him. They never really cracked down on any of it. The people- And who why are, is that? Well, that's a great question. I'm still trying to figure that out. I mean, Mueller, you know, he was the head of the FBI uh, from 2001 to 2013. And even in his own indictments, for example, his indictment of Manafort, it was for activity that had transpired while Mueller was heading the FBI and he did absolutely nothing about it. Mueller is also a longtime friend of, uh, you know, of William Barr, who is known as the Iran-Contra cleanup guy. He's the guy who Republicans have always relied on to clean up their dirty business. And so, so I think that, you know, we, we're talking so much about compromised institutions. One of the institutions that appears to be heavily compromised is uh, the FBI, in particular, the New York branch of the FBI and the courts, um, you know, in New York City who might have held people like Trump or, uh, you know, Manafort or people working with the Russian mafia, Felix Sater, or Michael Cohen. It might have held all of them accountable, but they didn't. And I give some examples of this in the book of, uh, you know, seeming payoff that judges took so that they wouldn't prosecute not just Trump, but uh, Ivanka and Don Jr. for money laundering, you know, which they were doing in tandem with Sater. What frustrates me is that they very obviously knew that all of this was going on. And they knew this before Trump ran for office. And, you know, 2016 was the fifth time that Trump had either ran or almost ran for office. They knew him running for office was always a political possibility. They knew it was a national security threat and they did nothing about it. People say, well, you know, of course, it's Russian mafia, and they're, they're just a fact of life. And people hold out, Sarah, don't they? Great hope for the SDNY, the Southern District of New York. What's going on? And Sater, 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 I want really to get to the bottom of him. Why has he disappeared? Why wasn't he pursued properly in the Mueller report? Was it shut down by A.G. Barr, who then wrote that four-page praise scene? 
You know, after Mueller refused uh, to indict obvious criminals, after Congress refused to act on the obstruction charges that were listed in the Mueller report, they put their hope um, in those court systems in the New York and D.C. courts, which have largely failed us. And there have been, um, you know, incidences of judges being threatened, of juries being threatened. So it's not necessarily purely uh, the court system, but they should have prepared for that as well, because they are dealing with, you know, either the Russian mafia or, or offshoots of them, of people who work with them. Seder is very interesting because, uh, you know, one of the few moments of clarity we've had in this process was when Michael Cohen, a lifelong friend of Felix Seder um, and a longtime uh, member or partner of the Russian mafia, as well as Trump's personal lawyer, he testified to Congress in February 2019. He came as close as anyone has, uh, you know, to saying that, that Trump was a mafia actor. The next hearing that was supposed to happen after that was Felix Seder, who completely ignored his subpoena, kind of began this trend of uh, ignoring subpoenas, and Congress uh, never followed up. And before that, he'd been kind of paraded in the media, much like Roger Stone, as this kind of amusing figure, as this like guy you invite to cocktail parties and hang out with. I, I saw that on so many uh, prominent media, uh, you know, journalists, uh, Twitters and Instagrams, on the, the sites of celebrities. You know, people think it's funny, but th there's nothing funny about this. You know, it's it's extreme corruption. And I agree with you that we have gotten to this point where people kind of shrug and they're like, "Ugh, you know, it's America, it's it's plutocracy, it's the Trump administration. But you should never, ever just accept that. You know, I used to <clears throat> work with people, um, you know, who were dissidents in the former Soviet Union, you know, which is the kind of uh, system that America is, is headed towards having, the kind of kleptocracy you see in, um, in Russia and Azerbaijan, uh, in Uzbekistan. It's an absolutely terrible way to live. You know, it, it's dehumanizing. It trickles down into your civil liberties, into the ability to live your life. Like you can't get through this morass of corruption the more that it entrenches itself. So there's, you know, people should have been cracking down on this immediately once it got into the executive branch uh, in the form that it is. They should have actually cracked down on it from like before I was born. But, you know, Trump was a giant, giant red flag and they should have gone into action. They should have told Americans the truth, like the FBI, anyone who was aware of the extent of this should have spoken out. Instead, they treated all of us who did speak out like we were crazy, we were hysterical, you know, that it would inevitably be solved someone would rescue us. Like, I knew that that wasn't going to happen. And it was with a heavy heart that I watched uh, politicians and other officials insist that that it would. And I don't know if they genuinely couldn't see it. Um, you know, they had American exceptionalism blinders on or they were in on it. Uh, it's hard to tell, kind of varies on the person. But either way, uh, the outcome's the same. Who are the people to whom Trump jumps when they say jump? I mean, that's a great question. And my feeling is that we don't know some of the names. I think there are quiet players in these types of operations, you know, who benefit financially um, and we don't necessarily see them as the public face. I think Mogilevich is still very active. He's just not interested in like the fame or the glory or the official political recognition. He just wants to continue to run his criminal operation uh, and to make a ton of money and to power the kind of governments, um, you know, to whom his money is circulating. 
circulated, most notably the Kremlin. Uh, Trump does seem deferential to the Kremlin. You can see that clearly when he's meeting with Putin um, publicly. You see a, a massive change in his body language. Like it's one of the few times he really seems uh, frightened and, you know, almost, I mean, it's not quite shame, but, you know, there, there's sort of a recognition of uh, powerlessness about him. And I think that that's not so much about Putin, the individual, as Putin, the representative of this massive crime system uh, that can deny him the power and the money that he craves and also expose him, um, expose his family members, I, I suppose potentially bring him down. It's not really in their interest to do that. I think there are other um, players involved. You know, this is a transnational operation, so it's not just Russia. I think Netanyahu is playing a prominent role. His connections to Jared Kushner are notable. Um, you know, those families, those crime families, go back decades. Um, I think the role of MBS, you know, another Kushner pal, uh, is notable. The attacks that they've leveraged on the media. And then you have these kind of mercenary groups, uh, whether Black Cube or WikiLeaks, these kind of non-state entities that work for uh, you know criminal operations for individuals and for governments, gathering information, blackmailing people, bribing them, threatening them. Um, you know, all of this is is working in tandem, and all of it is a massive threat uh, to democracy. Indeed. Now, I need to go very thoroughly with you into the myth that is Donald Trump, the real estate tycoon. Because this is where these people we're discussing have him by the short and curlies. You have quite a lot of information about that, Sarah. I mean, yeah, I don't have the tax returns. I have information about the absence of information about his finances, which he, you know, obviously doesn't want us to know. Um, you know, there's been a lot of strange documentation of that. You know, I agree that he was a, a paper billionaire. It was all about image. He was very good at manipulating the media. This goes all the way back to the 1970s of having people write these glowing puff pieces on him, presenting him as a tycoon. Roy Cohn, uh, his mentor, trained him um, in how to deal with the media in that way. Roy Cohn himself was someone who didn't have any money. Uh, his great dream was to die owing the United States, uh, you know, millions in taxes. And he did, you know, he, they had figured out ways to leverage power in which they're basically siphoning off the wealthy while not actually uh, earning a living themselves and moving that money around in a way that it's hard uh, to be traced. In the Czech Republic um, in 2016, there were these strange documents released by what was essentially the, the Czechoslovakian version um, you know, of the, the KGB, of their security services, when they would monitor Donna, uh, Donald and Ivana Trump, um, you know, his ex-wife who, who was of Czechoslovakian descent, when they would visit there. And that's a typical thing for uh, any Soviet satellite state uh, to do, is, is to monitor the rich and famous. In those documents, they said that Trump had made a deal with the federal government to not pay taxes from 1977 until 2007. And they also said he planned to run for president. He was going to have three children with Ivana. You know, those things came true. So while it sounds insane, I wonder if there's something to this, uh, you know, to this thing with him not having to pay taxes, if that's an arrangement that was made and that the U.S. government would basically be ashamed to reveal. And we know that Trump has not gotten in any trouble for all of his dealings with the mafia when they were backing up his properties. And I think there's a 
decent chance. Uh, you know, he was ratting out uh, some mobbed up actors while elevating others, uh, and that that's possibly something that the U.S. government would want to conceal and maybe would want to make an arrangement with Trump about uh, for his taxes, or would at least want to hide his taxes in case it showed that. Um, and so, yeah, it's it's a very complicated thing. It's deeply frustrating to me that we're now, you know, five years from the point where, where reporters and members of Congress are demanding his tax returns or his bank records, and we still haven't seen them. The same thing's happening with uh, Deutsche Bank. And Trump has now uh, packed the courts with the help of people like Mitch McConnell so that when those cases go forward, you know, as the I think they're going to at the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court is bound to rule in Trump's favor and prevent that information from getting to the public. I think what I find so very disturbing, Sarah, is you warned about this in 2016. So they will have entirely wrecked the rule of law, as far as we can tell. Is that the situation? I think it's. it seems to be. I mean, I think greed is a common denominator of all these people. What's interesting to me is that we've seen a record number of Republican resignations, including people who very obviously had big political ambitions, people like Paul Ryan, you know, retiring from politics relatively young. I think it's because they did not want to get uh, ensnared so deeply into the level of organized crime and corruption that now dominates the Republican Party. You know, the Republican Party who made Michael Cohen their deputy finance uh, chairman. It's like, you don't do that unless you're very hooked up with organized crime. And I'm not saying Ryan's a good person because he helped bring the situation about, but I think there's an element of fear because they see that some of the tactics they use, they involve threats, they involve bribes, they involve blackmail. Um, I think it's possible that some of the Republicans that stepped away from this after, you know, uttering hollow condemnations of it were maybe uh, paid off um, or they just, you know, took the money that they'd already made and, and, and ran. Um, but it, the uniformity of their behavior really disturbs me. You know, it's so it, it's unusual, honestly, in America for a party to fall in line like this and also for the opposition to a large extent um, to fall in line and to keep falling for the same tricks. You know, as you said, they're using the same election tricks from 2016. Uh, now in 2020, uh, we just had impeachment hearings about these kind of tactics, about shakedowns, um, you know, with Trump trying to shake down Ukraine. He's now using those same sorts of uh, tactics to shake down individual states, try to prevent them from voting by mail, trying to withhold medical equipment. And, you know, Congress is not doing much, uh, both the, the Republicans, but also the Democrats. There's not the level of determination to stop it that you would expect to see when so many people are being harmed. You know, when we do have record unemployment and a pandemic and rising fascism and all of these problems, a lot of them are just having this attitude of, oh, you know, we'll vote them out. We'll vote them out in, in November, which is exactly what they said in 2016. They're like, don't worry about it. You're panicking. Uh, Hillary's going to win. Every Everything is going to be fine. And I'm like, well, first of all, even if Hillary wins, this problem isn't going away. You know, they're going to keep trying to push um, to streamline, uh, you know, their criminal activity. And there's they're going to fight very viciously against a Clinton administration. So there's that. But 
I mean, the the kind of nonchalance about it that I see from party leadership, um, it's disturbing. And the Republicans at this point, I mean, they're just utterly complicit. Like, there's no way for any of them to extract themselves because dark money has been poured into all of their campaigns, money that likely went, uh, you know, from the Russian mafia or from sanctioned oligarchs into proxies like the NRA and then poured into their own campaign coffers. If there are investigations of them, uh, they're likely going to get in trouble, you know, whether they intended to get in on this or not. They're all contaminated by proxy. And so that's a problem in itself. Sitting here now with one at this table, what would you say to someone who's going to vote for him again? Oh, gosh. I mean... I, what I would do, honestly, is I would play Trump's own words. You know, I would play the tapes in which he routinely not just confesses his crimes, but confesses his destructive ambition for the U.S. I mean, there are tapes of him saying this, like going back decades. There's one in particular from 2014 that I play a lot. He was on Fox News and he says that what makes America great is total economic collapse, is riots, is total disaster, like that this is what he wants. He has never Ever had any in interest in, you know, making anybody's life better. And I have seen people, you know, realize that over the last few, few years. I mean, paradoxically, people who I would interview back in 2016 that intended to vote for him, some of them were voting for him because they saw him as kind of a, an economic strongman. They had never recovered themselves from the Great Recession. I mean, that's kind of true of, of almost everyone out where I live in Missouri. Like, people were still economically hurting uh, uh, the cost of living had risen exorbitantly. Wages did not go up. People were working part-time jobs. They didn't have benefits. They wanted stability back in their lives. And they saw him as this big businessman, this big tycoon who could bring that stability back. And they now realize that, you know, he's, he's in their view, a lunatic who tweets all day. And I'm like, honestly, it's a lot worse than that. Like he pretends to be a lunatic who tweets all day, but he's actually someone who's been involved in organized crime for decades decades and is, you know, very likely a traitor and certainly a Kremlin asset. You know, not everyone believes me when I tell them that. But I think the most powerful weapon against him are his own words, because people aren't necessarily going to believe me and they're not necessarily going to believe other people in the media. And I think there's some validity to that because the media coverage of him has been so bad. Um, so I don't blame people for not trusting the media, but they should listen to him, you know, with, with the critical ear and think like, what exactly has he done for me? What is he saying he wants from me? Is he even thinking about me at all? What did he do when he came to our region? Because you could look at that. You could look at him going to places like Indiana and, you know, bankrupting them, like in Gary, Indiana. That's his record. He doesn't care about us. He doesn't care about anybody. And I think that that's clear, but it's best to hear it straight from him. We do need to touch on Michael Flynn. We do need to touch on Ukraine. You're an expert in that area of the world. Why did Biden and his son walk into this trap that was so very clearly set for them? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I'm not a fan of Hunter Biden. I feel like he is also in this category where, you know, kind of just corruption that's technically legal, but very bad and, and white collar crime and, you know, organized crime. They're all kind of blurring. Um, and, you know, he should have certainly known better than to, you know, get involved um, with corrupt entities. Joe Biden, um, I think, is a separate thing from Hunter Biden. Like he can't control what his son did. But Jesus. 
Jesus. I mean, to, to run for president now, um, not just with that, but just with all the decades of baggage um, that they could throw for him. I mean, to be honest, I'm more worried about the legitimacy of the election in general, about election yeah. integrity. So, so in, in some sense, it doesn't quite matter who the candidate is. But yeah, um, you know, Hunter Biden is emblematic of a system I describe in my book, In Hiding Plain Sight, of nepotistic elites who insert themselves into position of power, who don't have qualifications, who don't necessarily have ethics. Uh, you know, he, he's one of those those spoiled, uh, you know, rich kids. And that's what he did. And it's Joe Biden who has to suffer for it. Um, you know, but we had impeachment hearings. I think it's kind of weird um, that they didn't bother to impeach Trump until Joe Biden was threatened because there's so many things to impeach Trump on. You know, there's the obstruction of justice, uh, you know, that was spelled out in the Mueller report. There were emoluments. There was abuse of migrants on the border. But no, it had to be about Joe Biden and Ukraine and 2019 with none of the context of what Trump and his criminal coterie had been up to, um, you know, up until that point. Uh, they really tried to divorce it from Russia in the 2016 election. They couldn't completely, I mean, because it is an extension of that problem. But I think that, um, you know, many of the Democrats wanted to because touching on that reveals institutional failure and it reveals how widespread corruption and white collar crime are um, across the board. And I, I think they just didn't want to go there. And what's going to happen with that uh, known friend of Putin, Flynn? Yeah, I mean, that whole case is disgusting because, you know, Flynn is not just a, a friend of Putin, a guest at the RT Gala, a traitor, a you know, a conspirer with Kushner, um, you know, to manipulate the UN. He did all that, but he was also a foreign agent for Turkey, and he was planning to kill a Turkish cleric, or at least kidnap yeah. a Turkish cleric. He was also making illicit deals with the Saudis involving nuclear material. Mike Pompeo now seems to have uh, picked up where Flynn left off. You know, he's a multifaceted criminal. He's extraordinarily dangerous. He reminds me a bit of Oliver North, and we've seen him be rehabilitated, you know, with the, the Trump administration as well. Um, a lot of this is, you know, people keep bringing up Watergate, but I think Iran-Contra and the kind of transnational swamp of that, like, that's what this reminds me of. And so, when Flynn, uh, you know, when he pled guilty at that and Manafort did, or, you know, the same week, I was like, OK, we might actually be getting somewhere. And then watching that case play out, watching Mueller refuse uh, to, you know, enact any penalties on them when they were violating the terms of their plea agreement. Um, you know, and even when the judge, Emmett Sullivan, in Flynn's case, was recommending massive amounts of prison time because he saw Flynn rightfully as a traitor. That is what Flynn is. It was Mueller who said, no, no, he shouldn't get any time at all. And now... So did he have something on Mueller? I don't know. I mean, Mueller is a bit of a mystery. I think it's, you know, Mueller got such a whitewashing in the media. There was such a campaign of Mueller, the savior, Mueller, the honorable institutionalist. I don't think he was ever those things. I mean, they, they kind of did it uh, in a lesser way with Barr, but it was easier to, you know, track all of Barr's, uh, you know, indiscretions and cover-up operations. I mean, when you have William Sapphire criticizing Barr, like, you know that he's pretty bad for even a yeah. Republican. Um, but yeah, people, I think they saw Mueller uh, the wrong way. And, you know, maybe initially Mueller was 
trying to actually conduct a, a real investigation, a thorough investigation. At some point in 2018, he, he just gave up because that's what it, it looked like to me. Um, and they seem to, you know, have an intention of letting all these guys off. And I don't know. I mean. I, people are like, all right, maybe Mueller's been threatened. But I'm thinking this guy ran the FBI for over a decade. I'm sure he's been threatened many, many times. I'm sure he goes into this with an expectation of being threatened. He certainly would know the lay of the land much better than you know most other people. He's the one who gave the speech in 2011 warning of the exact circumstances that brought Trump into office. So my guess is that he doesn't mind how this situation plays out. Although during his testimony, you know, where he refused to answer questions uh, over 150 times, you know, he looked sick, he looked tired. But I mean, who knows? All I know is that he didn't uh, serve his country. You know, he didn't pull through when it counted. He didn't do his job. You say that once an autocrat gets into office, it is very hard to get them out. They will disregard term limits. They will purge the agencies that enforce accountability. And we're seeing that across the board. They will rewrite the law. We're seeing that so that they are no longer breaking it. They will take your money. They will steal your freedom. And if they are clever, they will eliminate any structural protections you had before people realized what was going on. This is what we have, Sarah. And the thing I'm saying is the election arguably has become irrelevant. I don't think it's irrelevant. I think it's likely that they're going to try to rig it. I think it's possible that they're going to try to postpone it. But I don't believe in just, you know, rolling over and not fighting back and letting them win that easily. At the very least, if there is massive voter turnout, if there is a documentable, you know, observable process of people saying, you know, you will not take my right to vote for me and I am not voting for Donald Trump, we at least know what public opinion is. You know, that can create a movement. That can create inadvertent effects that the Republicans or any of their backers don't know how to deal with. You know, that's how autocracies have been defeated in other countries. I mean, I just don't think it's going to be easy because these guys know what they're doing. Everyone likes to call them incompetent, but this was planned and they know how to rig and gut the kind of apparatus they need to succeed. But we still have the right to vote. Um, and I encourage everybody to vote and also voting on a local level matters as well. Voting for judges, voting for your local officials, who often are the people who have to battle the Trump administration. We've seen that during the pandemic, how important that is. So, you know, they definitely matter. You know, I, I mean, my main point on, on this, like, if they truly didn't think the election didn't matter, they would not try so hard to keep people from voting. And if they thought the truth didn't matter, they wouldn't try so hard to suppress it. So I think that those are the weapons. That's how you know where we actually have leverage. Is, well, where are they? they fighting back? And what do they actually not want us to do or not want us to know about? Then you know like what the pressure points are. And it's not scandal. It's about crime. And it's about money at the heart. Sarah Kenzio, scholar, co-host with Andrea Chalupa of Gaslit Nation. Thank you very much indeed for speaking to KGNU Denver Boulder for Collins. Her latest book is Hidden in Plain Sight, and all our listeners here very well know her view from flyover country. Thank you, Sarah. Oh, thank you so much for having me on.